welcome to the Data Democracy. Presented by renowned O'Reilly author Olaf Olsen Banyus. Empowered by Xenia. Make your data accessible and discoverable by anyone, anywhere, at any time. Hi, Malcolm. Hi, Ole. How are you? I'm fine, thank you, and you're... Very good, thank you. Very happy to be with you today. I'm excited to have you on. Okay, so I will um, I will do a bit more formal introduction of, of who you are. Um, and also just say briefly that uh, I'm your host, Ole Olesen Benu. I'm Chief Evangelist in Sinea, uh, and I'm the author of uh, the Enterprise Data Catalog, published by O'Reilly. In this podcast, we explore what a data democracy is. Uh, a data democracy is something that I believe every company needs, but it's something also that comes with a lot of limitations, uh, a lot of uh, very difficult uh, decisions to make, and also it's quite difficult to define a data democracy. And so that's what we talk with the guests about. And today's guest is Malcolm Chisholm. Malcolm is considered an international data governance expert. He is a Dharma Lifetime Achievement Award winner, a seasoned keynote speaker, author, board member, and finally he is a bilingual as he is fluent in Spanish. Malcolm has his own consultancy company called Data Millennium, providing advice on all things data governance and management. He has a PhD and this is academic studies at the University of Oxford and the University of Bristol. Malcolm is an author of several books of which definitions in information management is the latest. The book provides a practical approach on how to write, govern and manage definitions in information management. And these are often done quite poorly, hence the reason for the book. And I can definitely confirm that. <laughs> anyway. I will also just mention that um, I came across your profile, Malcolm, uh, as you began posting, or at least when I noticed uh, you began posting uh, about data catalogs on LinkedIn, and your posts were very thought-provoking. So I actually have a quote from one of your posts, so I'm going to read out loud here. Uh, suppose a data catalog captures 2 million database columns, probably about right for a mid-size enterprise data landscape. How many data owners will there be? Maybe 100? That is 20,000 columns per data owner on average. Does it really sound feasible to tell someone they are accountable for 20,000 columns on top of their day job? And so, Malcolm, what I like about this thinking is that it's rooted very much in the pragma pragmatic realities of data management. And so just to open the conversation, can you share a bit more about your work experience, Malcolm, and what you do? Sure, Ole. And thank you very much for your work, too, on data catalogs and all that you do. It's very helpful to the community. Um, my, my background initially was in IT as a programmer, I guess what would be called an engineer today, but a programmer. And, um, you know, I kind of developed systems, worked my way up through that and um, not just developing applications in the end, ending up developing um, products as well. 
as part of that, I got interested in database design and databases in general, especially um, when um, data modeling was getting started in the data modeling tools. So I was very fortunate to be, um, you know, actually associated with Irwin when they started. So that gave me much more of an interest in data, how it's managed, how it's designed, metadata. And from there, I went to reference data, master data management, got involved in those topics quite deeply, um, as well as still doing development activities, including building business rules engines, which is metadata engineering, using metadata to do programmatic kinds of things rather than handcrafting programming. And from there, uh, kind of got into the uh, more strategic elements of data um, governance as it became. That I, I think that became popular around 2005. So, and then it's been sort of the explosive growth of data governance and all the capabilities within it, um, which seem to be growing all the time. I mean, data privacy, for instance, suddenly, it was always a concern, but it got much more prominent after 2016. And that's a core part of core capability now in data governance. So trying to work with all these different capabilities of, of data governance and what they what they mean today. So um, today, much more on the strategic advisory side than you know, when I first started out. So that's a brief resume, 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 resume of my experience. <clears throat> Thank you. Thank you very much, Malcolm. I think this is, uh, of course, very interesting. I, I noticed that, uh, so you have worked with data governance in, in quite, uh, quite a bit of time. And, uh, and it on your LinkedIn profile, it also says that you have um, what is called a Dharma Lifetime Achievement Award winner. What, um, what, what is that? How do you obtain such a, a status? Or well, these these awards are handed out by DAMA, which is the DAMA International, the the Data Management Association, and you know they have a website. They do a lot of things. They uh, play a very central role in um, all things data. I think. Uh, they have local chapters, they promote the industry. So they do give out um, periodically these awards and uh, they are, um, uh, you know, for me, it, it's where you've done something special. For me, it was like master and reference data. I've written the only book on reference data. Um, and and um, I think that was part of it. Uh, so very um, honored, obviously, to have that award. It's very prestigious and um, very grateful to Dama International. Yes, I I can uh, definitely understand that uh, that, that you uh, will feel honored about that award. I have been following uh, Dama for quite a while, and uh, the data management book of knowledge is uh, is is a really really important reference, uh, both in my own work and in terms of book, but also just uh, working with data uh, in my everyday work. It's quite important. Um, so are you part of a Dharma chapter or 
I mean, are you part of Dharma in the US or UK or, or are you simply, have you simply received the honor as an outsider or how did that work? No, I, I'm a part of Dama. Um, in, I mean, I interact with them here in the, um, in the US by going typically to the conferences they put on. We don't unfortunately seem to have a chapter in the particular area that I live, um, although this changes from time to time, so I should, that may not be accurate anymore and I should check it. Um, were they to do so, then I would certainly be, you know, a member of my local chapter and I would encourage everybody to become members of their local chapters too. Yes, it's a, it's a really, it, it is a truly uh, international organization and uh, there are many uh, people that are affiliated with Dharma in my network and I, the Danish chapter where I live in, in Denmark is, is not very uh, mature. They are building it and I think it's, uh, it's, it's maturing, uh, but it is very new. Um, um, okay, so it's talking a bit more about your experience. You have moved from uh, more practical elements you mentioned in the beginning of your career towards more strategic advisory. Is, is that simply a, a result of experience or was it a deliberate choice to, to go in a more strategic direction? Somewhat of a deliberate choice because if you want to remain at the technical level, you're going to have, you're obliged to um, deal with changing ways of technology. Okay. Mm. So you, let's say you wanted to be a developer or a programmer or an engineer as the languages change, um, then you have to master those. And you can see this particularly, you know, with things like, um, reporting packages where they seem to, you know, change rather frequently. Um, mm -hmm. so you have to learn the latest and greatest. So, um, it's, it's quite painful to do that. <laughs> the way to avoid it is to um, go away from that to things that are more analytical or design-oriented or strategic, where, yes, you still have to learn things, but you, you're not uh, forced so much by, you know, couple, every couple of years, something changing in technology. Yes, definitely. And I also guess that even though um, the languages changes, the technology changes, um, many of the dilemmas are, are the same. I mean, I see a lot of repetition, at least, in terms of what problems occur when we work with technology. I think you're right about that. I've been thinking about that quite a lot this week, thinking about how as previous generations of technology were discarded, so was all the knowledge and learnings from them too. So yeah. we're, we're condemned to repeating past mistakes. In fact, I think there's been some kind of break in the cultural transmission of things like data modeling from the, uh, from let's say 20 plus years ago to the data engineering teams of today where it's not infrequent that you'll find data engineering teams that don't really have um, a background in what should be industry standard uh, data modeling concepts and techniques. 
and there's other things like that too, which is, is super interesting. How did that how did that break in cultural transmission occur? Yeah, how how did it occur? I mean, I've been listening to, for example, um, Bill Inman. Uh, some call him the father of the data warehouse. It is definitely true that he played a, a big part in inventing the, the data warehouse, right? Um, he he had he put forward this this uh, it's a bit too much to call it a thesis, but he thinks this is rooted. This cultural loss is rooted in the fact that IT employees are always always in demand. And so the way people in IT get a raise is to simply shift uh, position between companies. That leaves this, creates this cultural vacuum where you can't really, you can't pass your knowledge on to anyone. Maybe that is rooted in, maybe that is why. I don't know. Partly, what do you think? partly. Um, I think if we, if we go back to 1964, when the computerized age first began with the you know appearance of of you know IBM series 3 mainframes there was clearly at that point and i do this because it's easier to think about these things this way there was nobody in a organization a company who could work with computers by definition because there weren't any up to that point so they had to recruit it people from outside of the organization. And this was the beginning of the sort of IT business divide because those people by definition knew nothing about the business or maybe a few did, but almost certainly knew nothing about the business they were coming into. They remained more oriented or aligned to the IT industry than the enterprises they worked for over time. And it persisted. And I think what's happened, we've seen Something similar seems to have happened with the emergence of big data. Well, big data is dead now. It's gone. Yeah, um, yeah agreed. So, agreed. Um, but something happened with the new cloud technologies that it spawned, whereby it there was a, a yes, you're right, a strong demand for IT professionals, but rather than them coming from a continuous sort of background culture, I think they've come in some way from something that's new and weren't subject to any knowledge transfer from their predecessors, and there may have been no predecessors. So something something like that has happened. That's my hypothesis. I'm not, clearly, I can't prove it, but something like that is going on. and. It means we could, these people are going to, we're all condemned to relearn, you know, um, what it means to have normalized data and things like that, which is not, not a very, you know, pleasant prospect. But there's something, something like that is going on. Yeah, I completely agree. I, all my practical experience tells me that you're right in this. Uh, I have been in the field in, in, in 20 so years and, uh, that is definitely also my experience. And I, I, sorry, may I add that I, I think that the there's also a distaste for history or a feeling that, you know, I mean, what could I possibly learn from a COBOL program, a kind of attitude, you exactly. know, exactly. It, it's like that technology is dead. 
So these people have nothing. They, they learn nothing that's of any use to me. Okay. Uh, why would I, why would I ever waste my time listening to them? So something, something like that is also playing into this. Yeah. There's this, it's, it's, it's deliberate, deliberately ahistoric, this field too, right? So contrary to many other disciplines that respect the course of history and, and learn from that political science, humanities, also many of the natural sciences, right? They, they learn from history. They need to, they need to learn, I don't know, Pascal's law, for example, in physics, stuff like that. They need to, need to learn history to, in order to understand this, their area of study, but in, in computer science and, and in IT, it's, it's very much regarded as as irrelevant and also a little dubious if you're interested in in like in historic aspects of the well computer history in general right i mean i think it might be tolerated as some kind of you know fringe academic interest um <laughs> but that it, it has no relevance to the work that people are doing today whereas you're right a true science is an organized body of knowledge which accumulates over time It gets bigger and bigger and bigger. It's not that there's, you know, what we have, which seems to be periodic episodes of technology where the old order is torn down and then, you know, people attempt to um, rebuild something based, yes, maybe based on better technology, but not the methodologies and the organizational aspects that go around it. No. Um I, I wanted earlier in the conversation to introduce uh, the idea of data democratization, as this is what we try to, to understand uh, in this podcast. But I, I do think that you have already touched upon it without really addressing it. But but you mentioned prior to, to our conversation here that that you have had some considerations on, on data democratization. So so can you elaborate on that? Does it Yeah. Again, if we take a historical, um, you know, viewpoint, if we look back in time, we can see that there's been periodic um, rebellions of business users against IT. There was, it happened with mid-range, this is kind of outside of my personal span of experience, but it happened with mid-range Uh, sort of mainframe computers. It then happened again in the early 80s with, or mid 80s, with the introductions of PCs. And uh, we've seen it again, uh, various episodes up to, including COVID, where digital transformation occurred with the business leading the way in many places in IT in a secondary role as businesses had to quickly move to online models. Um, so what, what seems to happen is that there is unfulfilled demand in the in business areas and there is also what is perceived to be a sclerotic IT environment which is dominated by um, ways of working that don't get a lot of business users um, what they need okay so that's a general background more specifically if you look into business The, you look at the, let's think of a fairly large enterprise and we look into the business areas of that. 
those business areas are broken down obviously into smaller and smaller business units and then within those business units teams doing specialized things those teams are doing their own little specialized thing okay maybe a team of half a dozen people now they have needs for automation and data management okay so what would happen if they tried to get those fulfilled by IT? IT would come along and say, yes, you know, we're agile, so it's going to take us six months to do this. Okay. <laughs> and we're agile, so you're going to have to have um, all of the your project manager, a business analyst, or this, that, and the other. Okay. So let's go a bit further. We get going on this, and the project manager comes in. I'll just say it, it might be unpopular doesn't understand the technology or the business and then but understands task management uh, yeah. and um, we have a business analyst now our team of six people have to explain to the business analyst the business problem the business analyst is by definition not going to be familiar with their problem okay and or their you know their business area okay so and and they're going to translate that and give it to developers or engineers or somebody else okay so we've it's quite likely that the the business folks don't have the time or energy to explain what their requirements are and then you get into everything failed because you didn't tell me your requirements or you didn't tell them me them accurately or fully okay this is the what always inevitably happens you know when with failure to delivery to deliver so but we still have the need of our little team of six people. So what would happen if those six people could do whatever it is they wanted to do by themselves? They understand the business problem. What they don't understand or don't have access to is the technology to satisfy their demand. And to me, I think this is the core of, 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 of at least from one viewpoint, what data democracy might be. It would be enabling them to do whatever it is they need to do. And if you replicate that up by all these little teams across a vast, you know, business landscape, it's a massive impact versus, you know, IT, which is going to be needed really if we're going to, you know, choose a new ERP system or something like that. Some me more on the mega project side, but, but, but that's not that's not aligned to the kind of data democratization I'm thinking of. There might be some other viewpoint on data democratization for ERPs, but I'm thinking of all these, this massive array of unfulfilled needs, which could be fulfilled if we had access to data, technology, methodology, knowledge, and these other things. So that, that's my, you know, the viewpoint I'd like to express. Yes, I, I can definitely relate to, to this, Malcolm. I, having worked in multiple companies it, from within IT departments, it, it simply resonates with the experience that I've had that some, some, some people in IT, some leaders in IT, they are pushing very much against what has been uh, coined as shadow IT. I, small uh, islands of IT departments inside the business, and then others, other IT departments completely uh, embrace such uh, quote-unquote shadow IT. I think 
with the emergence of cloud technology, I don't think a lot of companies has the choice. Many data, many um, apologies, many teams around in an organization will begin to simply do IT on their own because the skill set needed is lowered with the with the evolution of cloud technology. So, or or at least the dependency to a, a variety of skill sets, right? Right. So, I absolutely agree with you. And um, I think it's it's called shadow IT is kind of like um, to to it's a, it's a term of um, depreciation or something like that. It's it's not a it, it's not elevating it to uh, something that should be that is wonderful. Um, so we give it this <laughs> name. And end user computing is another one. So uh -huh. um, so we we have it, but I think it's more like dark matter in the universe. There's actually much more of it going on that IT appreciates. They just don't have a, you know, necessarily a way of truly measuring the amount of of, of um, what I would call business data processing that's going on. Okay, it, it's enormous, so, and in fact, all these companies, all companies run on on these things. So, how do you, you know, what's the approach? Well, it, it you know, they IT approach would be some cases to try to centralize it, which is impossible because yeah. as we just discussed, you can't even understand, you know, the you, you would not be able to understand all of these individual requirements through the normal systems development lifecycle, even if it's agile. Okay, so um, that's then the skills, the, the cloud computing gives us the environments to do it in. Um, okay. I think also what's going on that's extremely important is the no-code, low-code revolution, mm -hmm. where we've got SaaS tools that um, perform tasks which don't require coding or require very little coding. Okay, and these things are becoming wildly popular, and they also include the integrations amongst them. And those integrations are themselves no code, low code. Okay, so it's not like you 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 need um, if you want to build something with a simple UI and a relational database behind it to manage for simple list management or workflow management, um, you've got it. You you don't need to go to IT. You you the user or the, or the business person rather can just do it. Now, the question then becomes governance. Okay, do you want the Wild West or Mad Max, more likely, um, coming out of this? Okay, yes, the individual user teams are building this, but if we go back to our IT analogies of things that IT does that are actually critically important, you know, for what they or should be doing, you know, things like backups, restores, um, dealing with SLA issues, uh, knowledge management. How do we do that in a in a data democratization? Is data democratization anarchy because we've got the capabilities now, or are we going to have people who are going to use it in a responsible way? And it's more of a you know what a democracy should be they exercise 
their obligations as true citizens of, you know, of, of the Republic, as it were, um, mm -hmm. rather than just, you know, everybody does their own thing and nobody, you know, nobody cares what anybody else does and it's not sustainable. So that's, that's the other side of the coin. Yeah, it definitely is, right? I mean, I'm thinking about uh, all the hustle and bustle I've been in as an enterprise architect when uh, previous in my career. When when you when you talk about these uh, things, Malcolm, I I I also remember one of the key elements that that come into play if you if you open up. I, I really like I gotta say the term end user computing. I haven't honestly heard it before, but it's way better than than shadow IT, and it's more positive, right? Um, I think the identification of capabilities is something that you need to 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 take into consideration when you democratize um, IT and democratize data as you democratize IT. M imagine that every single part of, of, of your organization wants to do finance management that's pretty logical every part of the business has its own budget yeah if they all went along and, and bought an erp system themselves the the bill the, like that would cost an awful lot right so so is so as just as you just as you highlight right there, there is some some need for central governance or control in what we could call a data democracy and and and, and just understanding that is it's quite difficult. I mean, I don't have the answer. That's that's part of the conversations we have here. Right. I, I think I think there still has to be um, centralized capabilities. So, for instance, one of the things that concerns me is with the growth of, you know, people creating data pipelines, independent teams, they do their own data acquisition. So data acquisition is when you buy a data set, let's say, from a data vendor from outside of the corporation that you work for or organization you work for. Okay, so I, I get it that you need, you know, a data set for, I know, the, the, the weather in Scandinavia for the past 100 years because it's, it's maybe some kind of weird actuarial solution you're, you're um, creating here. Okay, fine. Well, if you think of that data democratization is that you the data engineering team building the pipeline goes out and finds that and just buys it with your budget you've got it's problematical it's problematical because you as a data engineer don't have the capacity to analyze the contract for say atypical terms in it such as you can't use the data that you're buying to derive other data or you can't distribute it you know in uh, more than this kind of fixed way or the data vendor can do unannounced audits on you to find out what's going on that's you you know you you're not specialized to do that hence you do need some kind of centralized data governance unit that might also centralize the inventory of um of subscriptions in a catalog and could say, well, we already, maybe we already have such a subscription, just go and use that. So the, 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 the centralized capabilities that are going to be needed within this democratic framework, and I think part of what we have to do for the data 
part of the world is figure out what those are. Okay, but mm -hmm. that's an example, one that I think is fairly clear. Um, so we can't just have, you know, people running a mark and doing these things. No, and that's that's the fine balance in, in, in these discussions, centralized versus decentralized and um, IT departments versus business. Um, Time is time is actually up. <laughs> I think we could uh, we could go for uh, qu quite a quite a lot more time uh, if we had. Well, time. we should we should another time, uh, Ole. I'd be very happy to continue the conversation. Uh, likewise, likewise, Malcolm. I I will do some takeaways. Uh, try to wrap up some of the things that we have talked talked about. I I would like to hear if I I, I got it. Uh, well, not everything, but but highlights of, of what we talked about if it's correctly understood okay so first of all um uh you mentioned uh that we are a little deemed to to repeat the past mistakes uh, in it for example about uh, data modeling and and you talked about uh, the be the beginning of the it and business divide stretching all the way back to mainframe computers is that yeah. correct? Yeah. yeah, correct. Yeah, and so that is uh, that is more or less as long as we have had uh, modern computing, at least. Yeah, it's, uh, it's an original sin of computing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. That's a, a nice way to um, to phrase it. Uh, also, you talked about data rebellions, um, and there have been several of these rebellions from mainframe. Uh, personal computers and online here in, in the COVID area. That is um, also the no-code, low-code revolution yeah. we talked about, about these. So I guess talking about democratization, it's pushed forward by evolution, but also a little bit by revolutions. Uh, yes. there You touched upon this too, Ole, that there's a lot of resentment towards IT not being able to fulfill user needs. Yeah, yes, exactly. Um, that was uh, the last uh, thing I wanted to, to mention here that some of the like most central elements of a data democracy to you is to enable teams to, to let them do uh, whatever they want to do with data. And I guess that is a very, very nice and simple way to phrase a democracy, a data democracy. And so, so that was my that was my takeaways, Malcolm. I'm I'm very happy that you wanted to join uh, the show. Just let me say, Ole, thank you very much for the invitation to be on the podcast, and also uh, thank you for all the work that you're doing um, in this area. Malcolm, likewise, uh, your experience is, is quite ex uh, uh, inspiring for me, and uh, I hope we get to meet uh, physically, uh, discuss more. Take care. Thank you. Hi there. Okay, so these are the takeaways uh, from my conversation with uh, Malcolm Chisholm. And uh, first of all, the data leader takeaways. As a data leader, you should move. Malcolm started as a programmer, but he continued and evolved into doing strategic advisory. So remember, education does not stop with you ending your studies. You should study all your life to be able to move and 
have the career that you really want to have as a, as a data leader. Also, you should understand the IT requirements from the business and you should be able to translate that uh, into the reality that the IT department has. And finally, you should understand IT history as a data leader. It will give you a strategic advantage that your competitors do rarely have and you should use that. And so for the data democracy takeaways, also remember the past. In this case, you should remember uh, the past uh, because it's important uh, for the data democracy in your company. Technology fades, but the reason why people use certain technologies, what they wanted to obtain with it and how they actually used it is something that you can use to build a data democratic culture in your company. Also, uh, the takeaway I got from Malcolm on uh, data democracy, that is that there has always been an IT business divide. And we recognize that in the global data community, but Malcolm had some very crisp advice on how to end that divide. And that is my third takeaway. And that is that the business should be enabled to do whatever it wants to do regardless of the IT department. And this is a little radical, but if you think about it, not that radical after all, because we shouldn't think of the business doing IT as shadow IT. Instead, we should think of it as end user computing, which is simply IT enablement for everyone. So that was Malcolm's uh, input on my takeaways on it. And uh, I see you, I look forward to seeing you next time. Bye-bye.